All right, so let's go ahead and start off with American Colonial Society in the 18th century. And we'll start off with the characteristics. Now, there's going to be an enormous population growth, and this is going to be in all 13, 13 colonies. The demographic changes are going to be because of a shift in the balance of power between the colonies and England. So, in 1700, the colonies are going to have less than 300,000 people. But by the time we get to 1775, so literally 75 years later, there's going to be 2.5 million people, with 20% of that being black. Now, the largest colonies are going to be Virginia, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Maryland. And there's going to be four major cities. New York, Boston, Charleston, or Charlestown, as it was called then, and Philadelphia. 90% of all your colonists are going to live in a rural area because, remember, they're farmers. And this isn't going to change much. Even by the time we get to the American Revolution, it's only going to be a 10% drop, so 80%. Now, America was considered, and still is by a lot, the melting pot. It's called the old immigration. So, the British American colonies are going to have the most mixed population in pretty much all of the world except for, well, really just them. Um, and this is going to be despite being mainly English. Now, the South is going to hold about 90% of all of the slaves in the Americas. New England is going to be the least ethnically mixed because it's going to be predominantly English. You know, you've got the Puritans and everything. And then the middle colonies were the most ethnically mixed. Even though it's going to be predominantly white, you're going to have the Dutch, the Swedes, the Finns. <clears throat> now, outside of New England, about half of the population was non-English in 1775. Now let's look at a population breakdown for 1790. It was 66% English and Welsh. Now this was, you know, the English was the dominant language and most of the uh, institutions, you know, colleges and whatever, this is going to be British. Now 20% of the population is going to be African. Obviously most of it concentrated in the South. You've got the Scots-Irish and the Scottish Highlanders. That's going to be about 6%. So you've got the Presbyterians, and then these are your Lowlanders. They're really just, they're squatters on the frontier land. And they're, in, they're going to end up having to fight the indigenous for this land. Now, they were squatters because they moved in without permission. They didn't have any legal title. Most of them were poor. Uh, they're eventually going to move into the backcountry of places like Maryland, over in western Virginia, so think, you know, the Appalachians, and in the western Carolinas. They're going to hate the British because they uprooted them earlier from Scotland, mainly because of their beliefs. And thousands are going to come in the early 1700s, and mostly they're going to go to Pennsylvania. Now, the Scottish, or the Scots Highlanders, this is going to be a, a relatively small population. They're still going to continue to be loyal to the crown, and they're going to be relatively well off. So, you've got these two distinctly different groups coming from the same area. Now, Germans. This is going to be about 5% of the population. They are leaving because of religious persecution. They're primarily Lutheran. So, in places that Catholicism is still really strong, they don't, they're, they're not really wanted there. 
They're also going to leave because of economic oppression and because there's going to be war in Germany in the early 1700s. They're going to settle mostly in Pennsylvania, and it's going to, they're going to be about a third of all the population in Pennsylvania. They have no loyalty to the British crown, and they're going to retain their language and their customs. Now, in the 2% range, you have the Dutch. They're going to be concentrated mainly in New York and New Jersey. And then you have the Irish will be more in, like, the New England colonies. So, Dutch 2%, Irish 2%. French is 0.4%, is so less than, you know, half of a percent. For the most part, the French are going to be up in the... Uh, in like the Canadian area, specifically like what we would know as Quebec now. And then you all of your other whites are gonna be about three, not three percent, point three percent. So your Swedes, your Jews, your Swiss. Now let's talk about the structure of colonial society. So my cat's dying in the background. Now stratification is gonna emerge by the mid eighteenth century, but not as much prior to, like, the 1750s. This is going to really start to come out now. You're still going to have a small upper class, so you've got your aristocratic plantation owners in the South that are, you know, going to dominate. They're going to have wealth. They're going to have influence. And in the North, you're going to have your merchants, your lawyers, your officials, and, of course, your clergymen. Your next step down is going to be your yeoman farmers, and they're, they're going to be the majority of the population. These are going to be small landowners. Next, you have your small merchants, people who did manual labor, and those who would be hired out. Most of these did not own land. The next step was your indentured servants and those who were frequently in jail. They had very little to no influence. And then on the bottom of that um, structure are going to be slaves even though they still constitute 20% of the population. Okay, commerce and trade. So the British Empire was based on mercantilism. And this empire is going to seek economic self-sufficiency. So they don't want to have to reach out for other, you know, from other countries to be able to sustain themselves. They also want a favorable balance of trade with these rival empires because you want to have a balance of imports and exports. If you've got too much import, then that's actually going to hurt your country economically. Now, the colonies existed solely for the benefit of the mother country, England. Parliament's going to pass hundreds of navigation laws in order to regulate the mercantilist empire. In 1651, this is when we're going to get the first Navigation Act, and it was passed during Oliver Cromwell's uh, protectorate. Because remember, he took over England for, for a short while. And this is going to, he's going to try to prevent Dutch trade with the American colonies. So they end up, you know, smuggling. <laughs> In 1660, England is going to ban colonial trade with any other country except England. See, they're trying to make this... They're basically trying to choke it to choke it out. They don't want the colonies to become independent. 1663, all the goods that are shipped from Europe to the American English colonies had to go through England for tax purposes. So they couldn't even ship it directly to 
the colonies, even though England was trading with them for, you know, for that product, for that product to go over there. They had to go to England first. 1673, England is going to impose taxes on any kind of coastal trade among the colonies, and they're going to appoint custom agents to enforce all of these navigation acts that I've been talking about. There, you know, there's going to be later all, later laws like the Wool Act, the Iron Act, and the Hat Act that their purpose was to reduce colonial production and exportation of goods that would be some kind of competition to the British manufacturers or it would avoid taxation by the empire because they wanted to ship raw materials from Britain to Europe or to England. That way, in England, they would take those raw materials, which were relatively cheap, and turn them into something, you know, useful. So they would take, like, sheep's wool, and they would ship it over, and then they would turn it into thread, which would be turned into clothing, which obviously is more expensive than just buying thread. There would be certain enumerated articles, and that's E-N-U-M-E-R-A-T-E-D. These are going to be things like tobacco that couldn't be shipped to any other foreign market except for England, and this is going to be regardless of the higher prices in other markets. Then we get into Atlantic trade. Now, there's going to be two major triangular trade models. So, you have the Atlantic slave trade within triangular trade. So, you the New England Basically, New England would ship rum and weapons, usually guns, down to Africa. Ships were then filled with slaves and then sent to the West Indies. There, molasses and some slaves were transported to the British North America, where ships were unloaded and reloaded with rum. So, it made that triangular trade. Then there is the classic model. So, the Britain... Sorry, Britain would ship textiles, rum, and manufactured goods to Africa. The slaves were transported to the West Indies and North America. And then goods from the West Indies and North America, things like uh, sugar, tobacco, lumber, and even cotton, were then shipped to Britain. So again, you have that triangle. All right, the illegal American colonial trade was designed to get around these English navigation laws. Now, there's going to be a period called salutary, sorry, salutary neglect, and that's S-A-L-U-T-A-R-Y, and then neglect. And this is going to run from like 1713 to about 50 years later. This is going to allow Americans to trade without much regulation by the British Empire. So, during that time, there's going to be increased trade. So, the growth of the American population is going to create an increased demand for British goods. Now, as the American economy grew, Americans are going to seek other foreign market markets, and they're going to try to resist the Navigation Acts. Now, the exports to France and the French West Indies are going to bring money in to buy British goods. But then you have the Molasses Act. And this is going to be 1733. This is basically Britain, Britain trying to stop any kind of colonial trade with the French West Indies. And obviously, the colonists are going to ignore this. Um, this is 
pretty much typical of all of the navigation acts. They were, you know, aimed at the American colonies, and they were pretty much ignored. Um, New England is going to export timber, fish, cotton goods, and then some of the light manufactured goods to the French Caribbean to trade for molasses. New England ships are going to illegally bring French molasses back home to be distilled for rum production. Yes, molasses has turned into rum. Rhode Island is going to become the center for rum distillation in the colonies. Rhode Island's really living it up. <clears throat> rum from New England was shipped illegally to the, Fr the French West Indies, where slave ships had been disposed. They had left their human cargo there. And then they had, took, they had taken the rum to the Gold Coast of Africa. Slaves were transported via the Middle Passage to the colonies, places like Newport, Rhode Island, but some of the trade came from non-British ships. So, manufacturing. Manufacturing was secondary only to farming. So, you had lumbering, mining, fishing, and shipbuilding are going to become the most important industries during the 18th century. You're going to have smaller businesses like tailoring, baking, metalworking, things like that. And then the Iron Act of 1750 is going to put restrictions on any kind of metal production. You would have uh, female spinners and weavers at home that would produce a large output of cloth. In other words, wool. Then we get the Wool Act of 1699. And this is going to forbid any kind of exportation of colonial wool or wool products. And there's going to put, they're going to put a tax on wool products that are imported into the colony. So it's like darned if you do, darned if you don't. There were other enterprises like, you know, beaver hats, rum, and carpentry, which are going to kind of fall to the bottom there. Agriculture is still going to be very important, specifically in the middle and the southern colonies. Grain is going to be exported from the mid-Atlantic colonies. Remember, those are the bread colonies or the breadbasket colonies. Uh, tobacco from the Chesapeake, that's Virginia and Maryland. And it's also going to be shipped from North Carolina all to Britain. You're also going to end up with rice and indigo that are going to come from South Carolina and Georgia that are again shipped to Britain or the Caribbean where the rice fed the large slave population that worked in the sugarcane fields. Okay, religion in the 18th century. So the state of religion. Only one in seven northerners were church members. Even less in the south, oddly enough, even though we live in the Bible Belt. Uh, toleration came about in large part due to the enormous number of non-church members. The Anglican Church in the South and New York and the Congressional Church in New England were established and collected taxes from all colonists regardless of religious affiliation. Now, there were two major issues. You had the rights of dissenters that were in established churches, and you had a religious style and conviction during the Great Awakening, which we'll get to later. After the American Revolution, the desire for religious toleration led to the separation of church and state, which we'll get into with uh, the Virginia, Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. And this is going to be pretty much everywhere except in New England. Now, let's talk about some of the major religious groups. Obviously, the Anglican Church, or the Church of England. It was tax-supported. It was the official faith in about six or seven um, colonies. The church was a branch of royal authority. 
The faith was a little less intense than, you know, your Catholic. It was more worldly, especially compared to Puritism. And it was weakened by the lack of a resident bishop because the bishop was over in Europe. Non-Anglicans would see a bishop as a conspiracy to impose royal power. So they didn't have like a bishop, bishop. It's difficult to explain. Anyway. Okay. Uh, the Anglican Church is also going to establish the College of William and Mary in Virginia. And this was specifically to train ministers. And this is going to be in 1693. So we had a college way back then. The Congressional, sorry, Congregational, I've got civics on the brain apparently. So the Congregational Church is going to grow out of the Puritan Church. So it's going to be prominent in New England because that's where the Puritans are. Um, initially, all citizens, regardless of faith, remember they had to support the church through taxes. Eventually, a lot of your non-members are going to protest. They're going to become exempt the congregational church is going to emphasize Christ's existence in each individual congregation. Then we have the Presbyterian church. Now, they were closely associated with the congregational church because both were Calvinists. Now, in, con uh, in contrast to the Congregationalists, Presbyterians believed all Presbyterian churches constituted a unified body instead of, you know, having the individual uh, congregations. They're all one. And it's, it's not actually an official religion of any of the colonies. It was just kind of bounced in and out for some different ones. Okay, the last two are going to be the Quakers and the Jews. So, the Quakers first. They existed in, you know, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and even Rhode Island. They're going to protest the New England slave trade, especially, you know, around Newport, Rhode Island, where they were at. Uh, they were actually very important in the emerging 18th century abolition movement, which we'll get into um, a little bit later. And the Jews. All right. They were the, the, the first Jews are going to arrive mid-17th century. So they're a little bit, you know, a little bit later to the game, a little bit. They're going to be located in Rhode Island, New York, Pennsylvania, uh, Maryland, and South Carolina. And by mid-18th century, there's going to be around 1,500 living in the colony. So, you know, not, not a large proportion. So then we have the Great Awakening. Now, this is going to run in the 1730s and the 1740s. There's no actual, like, start and end date for this kind of thing. This is going to be the first mass social movement in American history. So, make sure you've got that underlined, starred, whatever you want to do. This is going to spread mainly through the middle and the southern colonies. It's not really going to run up into your northern colonies. The main issue was religious style. You had personal faith. You had your church practice. You had public decorum. So, there were two primary issues that went into this. So, first there was the crisis within the ministry. So, to what degree should organizational purity be maintained and the second was a crisis between the clergy and the laity so like the minister salaries the degree of political control that's exercised by the congregation now the great awakening was actually a reaction against the theological doctrines of the time against emotional stagnation and against liberal doctrines 
of these established churches. So that Arminianism, A-R-M-I-N-I-A-N-I-S-N, this is going to directly challenge Calvinism's predestination doctrine, and it was supported increasingly by liberal ministers. It basically said that man is not helpless in achieving his own salvation. That uh, a person's individual will can actually be a pretty effective force in, in being saved. So, let's talk about some of these people from the Great Awakening. So, you had Jonathan Edwards, and he is credited with starting the Great Awakening in 1734. But again, this was running in the 1730s. He was considered the most influential theological writer and thinker of the movement, and some of his sermons were actually read worldwide. So, you know, he's published far and wide. He's going to blast the idea of salvation through free will, that Arminianism. And he believed the dependence of, on God's grace was the most important. He's going to emphasize eternal damnation in one of his, his most famous sermons, and that was sinners in the hands of an angry God. He did this in 1741. His style was learned and reasoned, and it wasn't emotional like the other what were considered new light preachers. Then you have George Whitefield. He was an English orator who's going to travel extensively throughout the South, specifically the coastal towns. He's going to go through the middle and some of the New England colonies. His basic appeal was to the Bible. And his most influential figure of great, uh, he was the most influential figure of the Great Awakening because he founded Methodism in Georgia and South Carolina. Okay, then there's the old lights versus the new lights. Like I just talked about, Jonathan Edwards was not like the new lots. So you had the old lots. These are going to be the people that are more orthodox. Uh, you're going to have liberal clergymen who were deeply skeptical of any kind of like emotionalism and all these theatrics that would happen at some of the revivals. They believed that emotionalism is going to threaten their usefulness and it will threaten their spiritual authority. Then you had the new lots. Now they're going to, <laughs> bless you, they're going to support the awakening. I think he had to reboot. Anyway, they're going to support the awakening for revitalizing the American religion, and they used emotions in order to get more followers. Congregationalists and uh, Presbyterians are going to be split over this issue. Those of you who are listening, he's just wandering around. You good? No? He's trying not to laugh. Anyway, because he knows he's going to be on this podcast now and that y'all are going to ask about him later. It's okay. I just died a little bit. He's, a, he's, a, he, he's good. He's good. All right. So back here. All right. Baptists are going to attract uh, believers in conversion. There goes the cat. Who long for emotion in religion? Now, the significance of the Great Awakening. Apparently, the cat's having a Great Awakening. Okay, it's going to split denominations, increasing the competitiveness for American churches. This is a part, you know, this is, this is where you get a lot of the bickering between some denominations is the Great Awakening. Now, by the 19th century, the Baptist and Methodist churches are going to be the two largest in the United States, even though obviously it didn't start out that way. It's going to convert like thousands of people and they're going to bring religion to a lot who never had any contact with it. 
Uh, it's going to undermine a lot of the older clergy, you know, the more powerful clergy. It's going to encourage um, new missionary work, especially among the indigenous and the slaves. Now, the founding of the this new line, we get new colleges, you get Dartmouth, you get Brown, Rutgers, and Princeton are all going to be because of the Great Awakening. And it's going to lay the foundation of an anti-intellectualism as part of the American character. The Great Awakening also had a strong democratic component. So unlike Europeans, American colonists had much more choice over religion, which is a highly American trait. You know, it's our, it's in our First Amendment, it's so important. It represented another important example of resistance to established authority. So the older established clergy. Education. Moving on. So New England was the region most dedicated to education. I mean, that's where all these, these colleges were. They're going to stress Bible reading by community members. And then you have primary and secondary schools that are going to be established early in the colony's history, like the Massachusetts School of Law 16, in 1647. Literacy was much higher in New England than in the Chesapeake, so down in Massachusetts and, and Virginia, or specifically down in the Lower South, where only the privileged enjoyed the benefits of education because you had to have a tutor, which you had to pay for. So the middle colonies, they had primary and secondary education, just like New England. Some schools were tax-supported, while others were privately owned, meaning you had to pay for it. Uh, The very diverse population the, is going to make the creation of a good school system actually pretty difficult because you've got all these different languages and cultures and beliefs. And because of this, a lot of your wealthy families are actually going to send their sons, not their daughters, their sons over to England to go to college. Now in the South, bless our heart, educational opportunities were very limited for most people. Wealthy planters, like I said, they're going to hire tutors to teach their children, sorry, specifically the boys. And the population was highly dispersed. And this is going to lead to a very ineffective education system for common people. Now, higher education. So the primary focus was the training of new clergy, not academics. So, emphasis was placed on religion and on classical languages like Latin and Greek. Now, you get a dog. Everyone's chiming in on this podcast. The higher education improved with the establishment of the University of Pennsylvania, who Benjamin Franklin actually helped to establish. The first American college to be free from denominational control was this University of Pennsylvania. It offered a more modern curriculum so you've got you've got more modern languages more vernacular languages you got experimentation you ended up with you know courses on reason now there are going to be nine important colleges that are going to emerge during the colonial period you have harvard william and mary yale princeton pennsylvania columbia brown rutgers and dartmouth so you're getting your ivy league ones here all right, culture and the press. So most Americans were too busy working to, you know, just try to live, to end, end up spending any time on the arts. That's actually something that uh, I have been talking about with my world history kids because we've been talking about the Renaissance and how that was really just for the upper class because 
if you're in you're, if you're in the middle or if you're in the lower class, you don't have the free time. You are generally just trying to to work enough to get you know money or be able to trade or whatever, get what you need in order to survive. So colonial America is going to lack a lot of the high culture that that England had. Now there were some exceptions like Benjamin Franklin. His writings were very profound and they were going they're going to end up shaping the American character. There was a uh, one pamphlet or book or whatever you want to call it. Poor Richard's Almanac. Now this is a compendium of writings of a lot of like contemporary thinkers. This is going to emphasize industry, morality, and, above all, common sense. And it was actually more widely read than any book except for the Bible. It was actually read in Europe as well. Uh, he also did his own autobiography, which is now considered a classic. And it's pretty much the first American literary work that's been taken, that was taken seriously by Europeans. And it was unpublished until after he died. Uh, Franklin was probably the only first-ranked scientist that was produced in the colonies. He did experiments, obviously, with electricity. He came up with the bifocal spectacles, the Franklin stove, and he started the first privately supported circulating library. If nothing else, I like him for that. Love libraries. So, he started it, and by 1776, there were about 50 of them. So, that's good. All right, another... Um, what we call these people? Cultured person. Cultured colonist. Phyllis Wheatley. Uh, she was a slave who was taught by her master's mistress to read and write. So, you know, women helping women. Yay. She was the first important African-American poet and writer in America. And I'm hoping to get some stuff that, uh, that, Miss Wheatley wrote for us to, to read and kind of go over together. Um, abolitionists would point to her as proof that Africans were not intellectually inferior because that was one of the rumors that, you know, one of the lies, one of the slanders that can, was continued to be passed around in order to keep that, like that, that racial, that racial stratification. Okay, so the colonial press. Now, manual printing presses ran off pamphlets, leaflets, and journals. We can thank Johann, yeah, yeah, sorry, Johannes Gutenberg for that. Now, they're going to be effective for airing any kind of social grievances, and they're also going to build opposition to the British because the more people that know about it, the more people are going to get upset about it, the more people are going to try to do something about it. So we have the Zanger case. This is going to be 1735. The case is going to pave the way towards freedom of expression. John Peter Zanger's newspaper had criticized the corrupt royal governor. Zanger was charged with seditious libel and brought to trial. Now, he's going to argue that he had printed the truth. The royal chief justice ruled that printing was enough to convict regardless of the truth. Now, the jury is going to end up ruling in favor of Zanger, and newspaper editors ended up having some freedom. Now, this is not going to be you know, anywhere like it would be after 1776 because this is still British America at this time. Okay, colonial politics. Now, the structure of the colonies by 1775. Now, we talked a little bit 
In the last podcast about the three types of colonies, I told you there was rural proprietarian charter, and I listed what colonies were within each one, but I didn't really go into what they were. So your royal colonies. Now, remember that we had 10 of them, like I said, I listed those off. They had royal governors, and these were appointed by the crown, so the king. And they're going to be very closely regulated by Britain. Your proprietary colonies. Now, Pennsylvania was the only remaining proprietary colony as we get into, you know, the first steps of revolution. And then your charter colonies, colonies like Connecticut and Rhode Island, they're going to elect their own governors under a self-governing charter. So, you know, your most, your most free ones are going to be, well, the charter colonies. All right, the development of republicanism. So, republicanism. This is a representative government where people elect their own representatives to protect their interest. Should sound a whole lot like representative democracy to you guys. The bicameral legislators were most common among the 13 colonies. You had an upper house, which was called a council, and a lower house, which was called an assembly. So the upper house was normally appointed by the crown or a proprietor, while the lower house was elected by property owners, a.k.a. the people. They voted uh, for taxes to pay the expenses of the colonial government, and because they were more uh, property owners per capita in colonies than anywhere else in the world, the colonies were, in effect, the most democratic society. Now let's get into the nature of these American politics. So colonial governments did not enjoy the power that Parliament enjoyed, obviously, because you've got House of Lords and House of Commons, specifically House of Lords. Yet the colonial governments were far more reformed than those in England. And there, there was more direct representation, so the will of the people was more effectively expressed. And because of this, this was also less corruption. Now, the administration at the local level, we have to look at all three types of colonies. In the New England colonies, you had town hall meetings. In the South, it was more of a county government because, remember, they're all spread out. And in the middle colonies, you have a combination of both. It would just really depend on the area because some places were, are going to end up being more clustered while some of them are going to be more like the South where you have lots of agriculture, and you don't have people that are living close by. Now, there were voter restrictions. So, the upper class actually opposed democracy because they didn't trust the common people. <clears throat> so, in order to kind of protect themselves, they, you would end up with property or religious qualifications. They're going to be imposed on voters. And this is going to keep as much as 50% of white males, because remember, females couldn't vote, blacks couldn't vote, natives couldn't vote. So as much as 50% of the white males were actually disenfranchised, meaning that they could not vote. So our governors, so the legal power that they sort of kind of held, uh, they had authority to exercise veto power over colonial legislation. They had the power to dissolve the lower houses of colonial assemblies, and they also had the power of the judiciary in the colonies. Now, this is all in theory. So, make your little, you know, bracket off to the side and put in theory. Now, in reality, governors were actually pretty weak. Um, the assemblies often controlled the governor's salaries. So, like, for one instant, there was uh, a governor that didn't get paid for, like, 12 years because he governed 
opposite of the wishes of, um, of the colonial legislation. Uh, the king's order, orders were usually pretty strict and ineffective because, well, Britain was 3,000 miles away. Um, a lot of times, the governor would have a lack of money from supporters because, well, they didn't support him. Uh, assemblies had the power to fill government positions in most colonies, and this is going to reduce any kind of influence that a governor would have. And the towns instructed their representatives how to vote, which was often contrary to the wishes of the governor. So, in reality, they really didn't have a lot of power. Okay, so the development of democratic ideas in colonial America. So, there are six points to this. The first one is the democratic ideal of tolerance. This is going to start to emerge. The second, educational advantages. Now, these are going to be higher compared to Europe. The third, equality of opportunity. Again, higher than compared to Europe. Number four, we had more freedom of speech in the press. Number five, freedom of assembly. And number six, probably the most important, was a representative government. Now, as we get into the Age of Enlightenment, you get into classic or classical liberalism. Now, these are going to be based off of liberty and equality, human dignity, human happiness. So, when it comes to liberty, like I was, you know, it's the freedoms. It's the individual human rights. So, your freedom of religion, speech, and press, and fair and equal treatment. Equality. Now, this idea was supposed to be that all citizens should have identical rights and civil liberties. So, basically, there shouldn't be any special privileges based on, you know, your, your gender or if you were, you know, a different color. So, equality of opportunity. But it didn't mean that everyone should be economically equal. Just equal under the law. During the Age of Enlightenment, we're also moving toward science and... <coughs> Sorry, but talking for a minute. Science and progress and rationality, and my husband ran off with my drink. And then, again, that representative government. But that was only for people who owned property and had a stake in society. Because if you were common... You weren't allowed to become one of these representatives. <coughs> Sorry. Now, some important thinkers of the time. All right, sorry, I had to pause for a second. All right, so some of these important thinkers. You had John Locke, which we talked about in World History. We talked about in um, AP Euro. He wrote that second treatises on civil government. And it is going to justify England's uh, glorious revolution. He emphasized life, liberty, and property as natural rights. And that government should be set up in order to protect these things. He believed in the natural rights to rebellion. So that if a government was abu abusing its power, if it became, you know, a tyranny, then... You had the right to rebel against it. And if the government respects the rights of its citizens, this could be easily avoided. 
Now, Montesquieu. Montesquieu wrote The Spirit of Laws. He was very big on checks and balances and the separation of powers among the three branches of government. Something we talked about in civics last year. He believed that uh, despotism could be avoided if political power was divided and shared by a diversity of classes. Instead of, you know, <clears throat> like the executive branch holding all the power while the legislative and the judicial basically just sat there twiddling their thumbs. Then you had Adam Smith. Adam Smith wrote Wealth of Nations. And this is going to be a work on capitalism. So this is like the foundation of modern economics. He formulated the idea of laissez-faire, which is a free economy, in contrast to mercantilism. So you would have free competition, <clears throat> and this would result in a greater income for, in for everyone, not just the rich. <coughs> Sorry. Okay. So, deism. Now, this is a religious and philosophical branch of the Enlightenment. So, we're still talking about the Enlightenment here. Now, this is a naturalistic view of God. So, the whole idea behind this is that God created the universe and then stepped back. Basically said, all right, here we go. It should run itself, so I'm going to go over there. Um, this is also the belief in reason over revelation. Deists are really going to reject the traditional Christianity and the whole divinity of Jesus. Now, this is going to influence some of our founding fathers like Washington, Franklin, and Jefferson, and then, you know, Thomas Paine, who, <clears throat> who influenced our, our founding fathers with the whole um, common sense pamphlet he wrote. Now, this was not a wide-scale movement, but it was popular along a lot, among a lot of your uh, intellectuals. Okay, now that's going to be the end of, of this podcast. I am going to post the Democratic Developments in Colonial America. This is going to run from 1619 until the uh, 1790s. It's just kind of a breakdown of everything that we've went, went over. It talks about the formation of the Virginia House of Burgesses. It gets into the Colonial Assemblies, the New York Chapter of Liberties, Leicester's Rebellion, <clears throat> Um, the Paxton Boys, which you really didn't get into, but this is going to give you a little bit of background on it. Uh, salutary neglect, and then all the way up to the Enlightenment. Now, there won't be an assignment that's going to go with this, but you do need to go over it and read it and, you know, kind of know this stuff. Because it'll also help you with your terms to know. <clears throat>